When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's Josh. Hi, and it's Joe. And you're about to listen to another great episode of the movies that made me. Uh, just want to give you a heads up. Many of the movies. Occasionally, we'll talk about something that's pretty obscure and has never come out on video. Most of the movies we talk about on the show are available at MoviesUnlimited.com, which is the movie collector's website. Yeah, don't waste your time streaming or looking for your favorites on TV. You can own them. Physical media, babies. Yes, go to the TrailersFromHell.com website. Click the Movies Unlimited banner on the website and you can buy your favorites from them or go right to MoviesUnlimited.com. Shipping is always free on orders over $50. Movies, movies, movies. Hi, it's Josh. And if you've ever listened to the show or met me for five seconds, you know I'm not exaggerating when I tell you what a thrill it was to get to finally discuss movies with Bruce Dern. Um, Bruce is obviously one of the greatest actors of our time. Um, he is an iconic figure. He's a legend. He's just a wonderful character, uh, and we have a great conversation. I should tell you in advance, if you've never seen the movie The Cowboys, even though the statute of limitations is up, uh, I would say hit pause, watch it now, because we are going to spoil the shit out of the ending of that movie, and uh, I don't want to ruin the film for you. Bruce has got a new movie out. It's called Last Call. It's actually showing in some theaters right now as we speak, and here he is uh, talking to me and Joe the audio quality is not quite up to our usual standards. We apologize for that. Uh, these are the things one has to endure during pandemic. But it was more than worth it to be able to talk to this incredible star. Here he is, the one and only Bruce Dern. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Need to call another number. Okay, fine. I'm here. We're here. Uh, I'm I'm Josh. We have not met, and that is Joe. And you have met. Yes, we have. Yes, yes. I know who Joe is. <laughs> I knew I know Joe, and he worked in Philadelphia. That's he, he's known me a long time. Oh wow! <laughs> so oh, what? Uh, from... now th this is your latest picture. You seem to drop one a week. Uh, wow. <laughs> You really, you really do like to work. I mean, every time I turn around, you've got another movie. Well, uh, I like it. Have you seen this one? Yeah, of course. We 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 don't we don't let oh. people on unless we've seen their work. <laughs> Actually, all the guys that did this movie uh, are from Philadelphia. Of course, yes. As as am I. And the movie is called Last Call, and it's coming out coming out when the uh, Pretty it's soon. out now. It's, it's out now. It's out now. It's in theaters. Even, in even in theaters, if you have a theater near you, that's actually yeah. open. It, it used to be called, when we first made it, before we released it, Crabs in a Bucket. Huh. I can see why they changed that. 
<laughs> well, yeah, no, it was it was nice to see the old town. It's um, I, I miss it terribly in quarantine here. But uh, well, you didn't see the old town because we shot it in Hoboken, New Jersey. Well, no, but you did. There's a lot of Philadelphia. In it. There's a lot of Philadelphia. Oh yeah, but I mean the scenes, uh, the the scenes where human beings talked. Yes, uh, that that was in Hoboken. I know, I know that, and I'll try not to hold it against you, even though there's a long-standing feud between our two states. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> Philadelphia has changed quite a bit since I w went to school there, and uh, you know, it's it's all modernized, and all the all the funky places are kind of gone, and all the cool movie theaters. In fact, there's hardly, I don't think, a movie theater uh, around in in Center City anymore. You mean you mean the Goldman and all that? Yeah, all those yeah, all those great the theaters. No, they they're just all gone. I remember I have I I still have clippings of the demolition when they tore down the Goldman because it was. Such a great theater. It was it was it was a huge theater, and it had um, a separate room for babies, a, a walled off yes. baby room where that. people could bring that. their kids. And I, I guess, and also a separate smoking section. I mean, it was really cool. I saw. There was also one called the Mast Bomb. Yeah, yeah. What I don't that know. Was, uh, that might have been off uh, Broad Street or someplace. I don't know, but uh, that's sad. Uh, yeah. I forget, Joe. Did you go to Temple, Joe? No, I went to Philadelphia College of Art. Which where is, is that? Over by it's right. It's at Broad and Pine Streets. It's right in the middle. Oh, I see. I I went to Temple. Oh, you did? Yeah. And he's not even Jewish. <laughs> when were you at Temple? Was uh, the, the early eighties? Early eighties. So John Cheney was still there. I don't know the name. You weren't a basketball fan? Oh no, I'm I'm terrible with sports. I can okay. tell them no, apart. Temple was very, Temple was very good in the early eighties. Uh, that's right. I do remember that. I do remember that. But yeah, but yeah, it used to be a great movie town. Yeah. You could see, you could walk to a million different theaters, and now you cannot. Well, you can't do it anywhere else either, right now. Yes. Oh, and also before before we dive in, Bruce, I I bring you a message of undying love from my dear friend Walton Goggins. Oh, wow. how do you know him? Uh, Walt, Walton and I go way back. He he's been branded every now and then as the new Bruce Dern. He has indeed. He he revels in it actually. Well, <laughs> by the way, since uh, I, I have to get this out of the way too. Um, I was 10 years old when the Cowboys came out. Right. And that that movie destroyed me. I, I'm still afraid of you. Well, it also destroyed my career for about a month because <laughs> I waited I waited 14 years. It was 1972 when it came out. And I had waited 14 years <clears throat> to change the image of myself. And I was opening at the, our, our movie opened the Cinerama Dome, first movie in it, Silent Running. Yeah. And uh, it was the uh, first film there. And up the street, three quarters of a mile at the Paramount Theater, the Cowboys opened the same goddamn day. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. So here I felt I'd righted a certain kind of an image and there I'm killing John Wayne up the street. Uh, but it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I, I loved the luck of it because it was, uh, uh, just a cute story. I, my agent called me and said, we want you to do this movie. 
we can't tell anybody about it because no one knows what the story is that John Wayne gets killed or anything like that. So you can't tell anybody. Uh, I said, well, I'm on my set of Silent Running. How do I get out? I, and he said, they need you Thursday and Friday in Santa Fe. I said, well, how do I get out of it without telling anybody anything? He said, well, you can't just leave. He said, take Douglas aside. He seems to be a, uh, an unassuming kind of a guy. I said, he's the most exact prick you'll ever meet in your life. So uh, he, he knows inches and everything else. He's a wizard. And uh, so I went to Douglas and I said, uh, Douglas, I have to go do a movie Thursday and Friday. And he went to Chuck Wheeler, who was the cameraman. And he said, have we got stuff we can do Thursday and Friday without Bruce? He says, yeah, we can do a lot of uh, gadgety shots of the drones with their hands and stuff like that. He said, why do you need to go, Bruce? I said, look. I'm I'm doing a movie uh, that I can't talk about, but I have to be there. And he said, yeah, but what what, what kind of movie that you're leaving us? Because we were on an aircraft carrier uh, in the Long Beach Harbor, uh, the USS Valley Forge. And uh, they scrapped it right after the movie was made. But it was a World War II aircraft carrier. And so... Uh, I said, look, I'm doing a movie called The Cowboys, and in the movie, I have to kill John Wayne. He said, you got the days. <laughs> hey, Dad, and screams out as loud as he can. Hey, Dad, because his dad was the uh, helping prop man. He said, Dad, we can't use Bruce Thursday and Friday because he's doing a movie where he gets to kill John Wayne. <laughs> so, there, there, there went my secret and everything else. But uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I liked, and I have a pretty good memory, but I, I, I knew Mark Rydell for a long time. A lot of people don't know how good an actor Mark Rydell oh, was. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, if they've Do seen The Long Goodbye, they know. Yeah, oh, I was just going to say The Long Goodbye and uh, uh, other things. And also, he, he directed good movies. I mean, he... Uh, he directed The Reavers, which was mm -hmm. a Steve McQueen movie. And I think I had an ex-wife in that. And uh, he, But he, he was good, and he was very kind to me. And the first day on The Cowboys, John Wayne, I had done a little part in The War Wagon, where uh, I got, I was a bad guy in the street, and I challenged Kurt Douglas and John Wayne. And uh, they had a cute little bit. They saw who we are coming toward them. And uh, the tall guy, who was Wayne's double, Chuck Roberson, he was my sidekick. And we said, okay, you guys draw. And, of course, they draw. And before they draw, they say, I'll take, uh, which one's going to hit the ground first? And he said, uh, Kirk Douglas says, mine will. And so I drew, and they shot both of us. And uh, they look at each other, blowing the smoke out of the end of their pistols. And they said, uh, the, uh, uh, Kirk Douglas said, well, I won. He shot me. And John Wayne said, yeah, but mine was taller. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know what was good about those, that movie in particular? Um, 
I forget. I think Bert Kennedy had something to do because I did a movie a year later for him called uh, uh, you know, Walter Brennan played my dad, Jim Garner. It was Support your local, local something. Sheriff. Yeah. Sheriff. Yeah. Yep. And Bert, Bert Kennedy, who wrote a lot of those westerns, he also directed that. But the first day on the set, John Wayne calls me over. We're in uh, above uh, Pagosa Springs, Colorado, which is at 9,500 feet. And it's about a 40-minute drive from Durango, Colorado. And John Wayne was there in his trailer and stayed in his trailer overnight. So he stayed at 9,000 feet for at least three weeks. And every night the crew would just live in tents. And uh, I mean, they could have lived in motels, but uh, there wasn't enough space. They would have had to drive many miles. I stayed in Durango, which was an hour's drive. I wasn't going to stay at a fucking tent. So uh, they, they stayed in tents and everything. And Wayne pulls me aside. Now, Wayne at this time had one lung. Uh, a guy named Beatty Ramsey took his lung out because he had cancer in it. And so he's up there at 9,000 feet plus with one lung and living there every day and smoking a chimney and uh, like a chimney and uh, doing his wild turkey 101. And he pulls me aside and he said, look, I need you to do me a favor here. I, he said, I want you to literally shit all over me every day, however you see fit. Because if you do, these little kids will be scared shitless of you because you can talk that way to me and that'll get their attention. So uh, I had his permission. Um, so I didn't, you know, go after him, but uh, I would, I would, I was rude to him. You know. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and it got their attention. And then the day, uh, I think Joe knows this story, but the day that I had to shoot him, he'd never had a bullet hit put on him. Wow. And it's yeah. the first time anybody had ever, I think he got shot in the shootest. Um, yeah, but that was after. It was after, yeah. Yeah. All right. And uh, anyway, and I think a Japanese guy wounded him in uh, one Iwo Jima or something like that. But he'd never been shot like this. And at 8.15 in the morning, there's 100 people around and everything. We shot the actual shooting scene on a soundstage where I actually shot him. And the the longer stuff we did before in Colorado, but the actual shooting scene. So uh, he looks at me. And he said, is this going to hurt while they're putting a bullet head on him? And I said, uh, yeah, you, you're not going to put one of those shields on? What do I need a shield for? I said, hey, bud, you know the USC marching band? They wear those Trojan shields. Put one on or have them put one on because it will hurt. And they're full loads. So he said, well, how bad will it hurt? I said, I don't know. And so after he did that, he said to me, he said, ooh, how they're going to hate you for this. And I said, maybe. But in Berkeley, I'm a fucking hero. <laughs> <laughs> and he had just done, he's the only guy at that man who ever did a full Playboy interview where he was the feature of that particular issue. And he just done that where he came out 
John Wayne, uh, black and blue. I mean, he just said everything he believed in. And so he was controversial in certain places. Yeah. But uh, he, uh, he was always very nice to me. And one of the great things about my generation, and really uh, Joe still, when he first came out, uh, but mine, I came, I came in like, uh, uh, 59. Uh, so I was under contract to Mr. Kazan. And, uh, one thing that happened great with us, we still had an opportunity to work with the legends. And I got John Wayne. I got Robert Mixon. I got Betty Davis. I got Olivia to have I got. You know, I got big folks. And I remember years later, uh, I walked onto a gun smoke set. Um, and this was, uh, oh, 1966. And the, the first assistant, or the first assistant was Walter Hill. The second assistant was John Milius. So they were the gun smoke assistant directors. And uh, so, Walter comes up to me and he says, now we got a surprise for you today. And guys, it's the only time in my career when I looked at the surprise, I ever actually got tears in my eyes in front of other people. I walked 10 feet to what I saw and it was Betty Davis playing my mother in a fucking gun smoke. <laughs> and it broke, bro broke my heart. And she said to me, she said, what's the matter with you, Bruce Dern? I said, but Betty, it's a gun smoke. Really? Well, who's going to pay for my cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> now, just as an aside, both Betty and John Wayne smoked five packs of cigarettes per day and down to the nub. <laughs> wow. And uh, one smoked Luckies and the other smoked Camels. And, uh, but, uh, my, my first day in Hollywood, um, uh, can I say a dirty word? And you say any word you already have. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's that? Uh, okay. But this is a me too word. I'll get in trouble, but it was actually said to me. I mean, not to me, but I heard it. I go on the set. I come out, I, I do a movie called Wild River for Mr. Kazan, which is my first movie, and we shot it in Tennessee. It, it starred uh, Montgomery Clift and Lee Remick and a bunch of Kazan's guys. And I was a little young letter sweater man. And uh, I just had like eight lines in a whole movie. But then they sent me, they allowed me to come to Hollywood. I hadn't left New York yet. And I was under contract to Dad, so he he told me he did an interesting thing. He paid. He had five contract players. He had Rip Torn, Pat Hingle, Geraldine Page, Brucey from Winnetka, and Lee Remick. And uh, they were all uh, kind of an older group than I was. And uh, he paid us. At least he paid me. $362 a week, which was SAG minimum, 52 weeks a year, whether I worked or not. But when I got out to Hollywood and started getting 500 or 600 for a week on these cowboy shows or medical shows, whatever I did, he kept every dime over 362. <laughs> <laughs>
but he was uh, he was a prince. I was very unaware when I got to Hollywood, and I shouldn't have been. It's my fault of the reaction of when I would tell people I worked for Mr. Kazan. Uh, it wasn't a popular thing to hear oh. at that time. Sure. Because he w- he was still reeling about the McCarthy hearings and all that stuff. And I remember he told me a story. He was preparing Viva Zapata at Fox. And Daryl Zanuck, and he got subpoenaed to go back to Washington to talk to Senator McCarthy and Roy Cohn and about, uh, was he a member of the Communist Party? And uh, then you had to go on a train, 1951. You couldn't fly, you know, every day. So he said, uh, if you want to do your movie, or work for me, you will go and testify and tell the truth, period. Or you're done. And he said, okay. So he went back to Washington. He went in front of him, and the first question they asked him, do you remember being at a party in 1939 Christmas time at James Whitmore's house? And James Whitmore lived in Ruskett Canyon. And so it was kind of, it wasn't private. It was right off Sunset, but it was, you know. And he said, yes, I, I, do, I do recollect I went to a party there at that time. He said, I'm going to read you a bunch of names, and I want you to tell me who you remember that was at that party, if they were or not. They read him 21 names, and he said yes to 10. And that was the 10 they said that he named. And those 10 were like uh, Adele Rogers, St. John's, Ring Lardner Jr., Dalton Trumbo, you know, whoever the, whoever the, William Eastlake. Wrote a movie I did called Castle Keep, and uh, so forth and so on. And uh, my uncle, uh, my mother's side, my my whole name is Bruce McLeish Dern. Is Archibald McLeish, and Archibald McLeish knew Gadge very well because in 1956 Gadge directed his play on Broadway called J.B. that starred Christopher Plummer and Pat Hingle. And it was a huge hit. It won a Pulitzer, so forth and so on. But uh, I never cared about it. I absolutely never cared uh, one way or the other. I didn't really know what it meant. Uh, And I, so what? James Whitmore was at his house. Nobody banned him from doing anything. Um, But anyway, so I saw an underbelly of Hollywood that I didn't understand in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, I didn't really know uh, what the vindictiveness was. I mean, I thought the guy was, you know, when I began as an actor, I was in Philadelphia. I quit Penn halfway through my sophomore year. And I said, uh, I looked around for a little dramatic school. I'd never acted in my life. And I looked around for a little dramatic school. And I found one called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts which was at that time called the Bessie V. Hicks School. And it was next to the Betsy Roth's house down at Third and Arch. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just a building and they had seven students, but, but Charlie Bronson had been there. And one of our teachers, there were three teachers. There was Morgan Smedley, there was a guy named Gordon Phillips, 
there was Jasper Dieter one day a week and Rose Shulman, and they ran the that Rose uh, something theater out and uh, out at the end of the main line. It was a very famous theater. And Ann Sheridan had gone there, and Richard Basehart had gone there. And the only other person that went to my dramatic school was Charlie Bronson for two weeks. So uh, I I was there about two weeks, and uh, I realized you have to do several things. First of all, you got to go to New York. Philly's out, no work. Number two, you got to try and become a member of the actor's studio. And number three, you gotta find a way to work for Mr. Kazan. So that was my challenge. And and I would say the other actors basically the same way. You know, you, you dreamed of being part of that. And uh so I was very lucky because the night that I had my audition, I did a little five minute scene with my acting teacher Gordon Phillips from Waiting for Godot. And uh it was perfect because nobody says more than half a sentence at a time. The first 10 minutes, you know, it's just, Hey, Hey, how are you? I, I'm good. How are you? You know, I mean, it was like that. And, uh, so we did that. And at the end of it, I didn't realize I auditioned on the night of studio finals. I'd never auditioned before. And both uh, Cheryl Crawford Lee Strasberg and Elia Kazan were the three judges because they started the studio and ran it. And afterwards, Mr. Strasberg walked up to me. I was the last audition. And uh, people kind of started splitting up and leaving. And he said to me, um, welcome to the actor's studio. I said, you're kidding. Gadge walked over to me and he said, be in my office at 1130 Monday morning. Uh, and I didn't dare ask where it is or any shit like that. So I, 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 I went and that Monday morning, he put me under contract having seen a five minute scene. That Friday, I went to the actor's studio for my first session as a member. And Lee and Gadge, before the class started, took me backstage, kind of. And they said, look, to us, you are our perfect Frankenstein because you've never acted. Therefore, you have no bad habits. So what we want to do, the first year you're here, and I was 22. The first year you're here, we want you to only do scenes where you're a silent partner. We don't want you to have any obligation to dialogue. We want you to learn how to behave. So that's what really made my career. Because before I had an obligation to say words, and have that crippled me for four years like it does everybody else, uh, I knew how to behave and take from myself all the time. And uh, I remember Gadge said to me uh, a year and a half later when they said I could go to California, um, he said, now when you get out there, nobody's going to know who you are. You know, you're not a conventional leading man. You will never be. 
And uh, so therefore, you're going to be the fifth cowboy from the right. <laughs> and he said, and it may be until you're in your late 50s or 60s before anybody really gives a shit about what you can do. And, uh, I, you know, now I'm 24 years old and I'm, I've been there two years and I'm, uh, I'm just stunned. I don't know what to do. And he said, secondly, when you get out there, and this is me telling you this, and you can tell anybody you want who told you that, and I can use, you can use my name. Never, ever tell a director what you're going to do before take one. I said, how the hell am I going to get away with that? He says, real simple, Bruce, because that director has something you'll never, ever have. I said, what's that? Take two. <laughs> so he said, make sure your thing gets recorded. Because <laughs> if you go up and tell them, they're going to say, no, I don't like it. I, I just do what's on the page. <laughs> and so, uh, and that's why originally Quentin gave me the liberty he gave me in his movies is because he, uh, felt that uh, he'd read that in a book uh, by Kazan. And you know what's interesting? Uh, you remember Janet Maslin? Mm -hmm. Well, she teaches at Wesleyan University. And Wesleyan, and she's the custodian and the guardian of the Kazan Library, which is at Wesleyan. And so that's why she took an interest in me early on although I didn't do particularly well with her verbiage in a couple of my early movies that she'd seen. Um, but uh, she ended up being uh, really nice to me. And I felt um, a pretty good critic. Severe. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, she was, she, was, she was fair. So anyway, uh, that led me. I got to Hollywood. I go on a set. I walk on a set at Fox at my call was 11 o'clock in the morning. I walk on the set and uh, as I walk on the set, I'm, I'm the, in, in those days, Fox had the stars dressing rooms were on the stage. They weren't bungalows or anything like that. They were fancy things, but they were within the stage. I walk on the stage and I see, see actors sitting there and I walk past over toward Bob Aldrich, who was the director, and is supposedly the greatest first assistant in the history of Hollywood before he was ever a director. But he was a real big, heavy set man. I mean, he weighed probably 300. And, uh, but he was good. He directed the Big Knife fellow. Sure. And uh, so, and an attack. He directed a lot of other, you know, good movies. But anyway, so I walked by. And the lady in the first chair says, uh, oh, there's Bruce Dern. And I turn, and it's Betty Davis. She says, come over here. And I come over there, and there's a chair next to her. She says, sit down in the chair. And so I sit down. She said, you're a Kazanite, right? I said, Jesus Christ, people don't come. Do they use stuff like that? She said, well, anyway, welcome here and know that I support you because I know a little bit about you. Um, and I said, well, thank you. At that moment, 
I hear screaming from a dressing room about 30 yards away that's on the stage. And the Royce said, you tell her that I'll be out there when she'll respect me enough to treat me as her co-star and not some extra. And I'm not going to come out there and she can be decent to me. Well, the voice was Joan Crawford. Of course. And Joan Crawford (laughs) came out of the dressing room onto the stage. And uh, Betty Davis saw her, never looked at her, and just said to Bob Aldridge, who was standing the other direction from Miss Crawford, and said, I'm right here all day, every day, Bob. I did it a year ago, and baby Jane, I'll do it again now. She's a nightmare. But I, and when she said nightmare, Joan Crawford quit the movie <laughs> on the spot and walked off. Well, we all got sent home. My first day in Hollywood, we all got <laughs> sent home because there was nothing they could shoot because Miss Crawford was in the scenes. The next day, we're called again at 11.30, everybody, crew and everybody else. And we're on the set. And Miss Davis says to me, this day, I, I had already had a wardrobe and everything. And I, I sat down and she had me sit next to her. And then about two feet away from me, was another chair and uh that was the chair that miss crawford used or was going to use as her chair this was their first week of shooting first two or three days and there was a, somebody sitting in that chair well I, I i didn't know how to speak imagine me speechless but i i i, I didn't know what to say and suddenly Joan Crawford comes on the stage and runs up to Bob Baldrige and apologizes for behavior yesterday and uh, everything that she, uh, you know, was upset about. Never said a word about Betty Davis. She said, I'll just manage to get along with this person playing the other role and I won't disrupt shooting anymore and I'm so sorry. And as she said, I'm so far, she never apologized to Betty. She turned and looked at the chairs we were sitting in and saw the lady sitting in the other chair beyond me. And she walked straight down to her. The lady looked up and she said, Miss Crawford said, why, Lily, what are you doing here? Betty Davis never turned her head looked forward right toward where Bob Aldrich was. And uh, one of you be Joan Crawford and say, what, Libby, what are you doing here? Libby, what are you doing here? She's playing your role, cunt. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Olivia Dablet. And she, she, she fled from the stage. And I don't think now in my, when I tell stories, uh, I changed the word cunt now because I get in trouble. (laughs) What she said. She actually actually used the word. And then I said, uh, when she left, uh, then we started getting ready to go to work, to go and rehearse uh, in front of where we were and everything. And I said, boy, then Mr. Haviland, um, she is a pretty tough cookie. She said, you don't know the half of it, Bruce. In 1939, uh, Olivia's mother brought her sister 
to work, and she was working on a movie for Alfred Hitchcock, and Livy was the star of it. I think she was 18, and or 19. I think Brian Hearn was in it. I forget. It was, uh, I forget the name of the Hitchcock movie. But And they went to lunch. And then uh, Olivia had to go back from lunch early to have makeup touch-ups. And uh, then they left because Hitch had to go back to the set a little later. And when Olivia got home that night, they said, Mr. Hitchcock was so nice to us. Look what he did for your sister. And they pushed a piece of paper on the stage. It was a five-year contract for Joan Fontaine to be Hitchcock's next blonde leading woman. And they never spoke the rest of their lives, Olivia and Joan Fontaine. How about that? There, there, there was no love <laughs> lost, apparently, even, even in the end. No, I mean, and, uh, uh, she, was, she was, you know, uh, in my book, I wrote a book called Things I Said But Probably Shouldn't Have. In my book, I talk about the great uh, dames I got a great work with, great ladies. And the actress who was always the nicest to me, I thought, the most ladylike, was Lee Remick. And also Geraldine Page, but I never did a movie, I just did a play with her. Um, but uh, Lee Remick was just so sweet, so nice. And you know what, Joe? She was genuine. Yeah. She was just the real deal. And later in her life, she did a TV movie where she played Frances Schroyer, who was the mother who killed her father, who was played by E.G. Marshall in the movie, um, about the two sons. And she killed them to get their fortune for them. And it was a famous murder in New Jersey. And uh, she played Frances Schroyer. And you, you wouldn't have known it was Lee Remick. I mean, talk about taking all the gloves off. But anyway, she she was very nice. I'm, you ask questions. I'm wandering off. You know what? <laughs> we're 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 having a great she time here. Doing just fine. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, theoretically, the um, the uh, focus of our show is um, asking people to talk about movies that inspired them, not 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 just the stuff they were in. And and I would love to hear. Uh, about, you know, you talk about working with some of those legends. Like, what were the movies when you were young that kind of, you know, set you on fire about movies that got you excited about them? Well, uh, the movies that I, I don't want to pick them apart and say why they are my favorites, but I have five movies that are my favorites. I think the best movie ever made was Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. And I say that because it was perfect in every category. I mean, from the acting to the scenery, to the cinematography, to the direction, to the introduction of Omar Sharif, to uh, Peter O'Toole and, and everybody else. And my biggest thing in my life, the thing that I am most impressed with uh, above and beyond anything else is people that get shit done. And he did that. And then wrote about it and was dead at 35. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. 
and I ended up working with some people on it, like the uh, sound guy, uh, Simmons was the, the sound. We had, uh, even though it was 13 years later, when we did Gatsby, we had, because Jack Clayton was the director, he got to bring an English crew to Newport, Rhode Island, where we shot the first month of the movie before we went to England and did all the soundstage stuff and the inside of the house and all that kind of stuff. But we were in Newport, and this was all during the time that Mia was adopting Sun Yi, who was six months old. And she was married to Andre Previn. And uh, Jack Clayton was an interesting guy because, you know, nobody, nobody knew a whole lot about him. But he directed a movie... Uh, something wicked this way comes. Well, sure, yeah. And I was uh, I was stunned stunned by that movie and the fact that this guy had directed that. And then he told me, and several other people told me during the Second World War, he was one of Montgomery General Montgomery's doubles. Mm. They had two oh, wow. British yeah. un- underground officers yep. that went around Northern Africa posing as Montgomery. So they would think that's where Montgomery was. And that was not the case. Uh, He was much further away. But he, anyway, uh, so that was a good experience. Then he said to me, uh, Jack Clayton, one day at lunch, he wanted to have a private lunch with uh, Mia and me in Redford, um, which was in a public tent in front of 180 people about a tent of our own, but it was open, so it wasn't too snobby. And he uh, he had said to me, uh, Bruce, you know, I embarrassed you, and I'm sorry for what you... I meant to meet him at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and he cast me in the room. I mean, he, he asked to see me and knew he wanted me, but he cast me in the room. He didn't make me sweat. When I left the room, he said, I'll see you in May at Newport. So I knew I had the role. But he... Uh, he, when I met him in his hotel suite, his wife was with him. And as I walked out, I played a little trivia with him in the, in the 45 minutes I was there. And as I walked out, he said to me, you know, who is she? Pointing to his wife. I said, I have no idea. And she says, oh, Jack, please don't do this to the poor boy. And he said she was Ben-Hur's wife in Ben-Hur. And her name was Haya Hayarit. She was Israeli. And uh, she's the one that uh, um, got the part. And I said, why? I'm sorry, ma'am. I forget. It was wonderful, uh, you know, when you went to see the leper and all that. You know, I just fumbled my way through honest stuff. And then I went to the door. He said, I'll see you in May in Newport. He said, who else is she? I said, what? She said, Jack, cut it out. She went, she put her arm on my shoulder and she said, "Uh, I'll save Jack the rhetoric. My father was Major Hyarit. He raised the flag on the King David Hotel when we blew it up and killed all the British soldiers and got England out of Arabia. Wow. Wow. So that, and I, 
I didn't know that one guy had raised the flag, you know, but that was the first time anybody saw the Israeli flag in 1948, whatever that was. So those are little anecdotal things. But uh, to get back to the movies. Yeah. Well, I loved a movie no one ever talks about, directed by Orson Welles, called The Trial. Yeah, me too. No one ever, no one ever saw it, but it's a Kafka story, right? Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a, it's a. Ter- I think it's a terrific movie. It's a, he, he was occasionally quoted as saying he thought it was his best picture. Oh my God! There is a scene in there where Anthony Perkins, who's the leading guy, so to speak, uh, is running down a hallway, running away from anybody in this huge courthouse sort of thing, and there's little rooms off, and he. He, he finally sees a door that's kind of closed hard and he kicks the door open, goes in the room and the room is a box, a big box with, with balconies on each side filled with people. And he walks through the door and everyone in those boxes points at him. Uh, it's the most frightening thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, the, because, the original, the, the original idea was to shoot that picture on sound stages, but when they ran out of money, they decided to use an abandoned railway station, the Gare d'Orsay in, in Paris. Oh and, my God. And, and it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's the whole ambience of the movie is, is this location, which is phenomenal. And, you know, oh. he's got scenes like when he's running down that slatted corridor with all the light coming through it and the, Girls are chasing him. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just it's one great thing after another in that picture. And I've never been able to understand why people don't cotton to it. Well, uh, did it get a big release here? It got a little release. It played in New York. I saw it in New York with a uh, with a big uh, display of Kafka books that they were trying to sell. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, my God. It just it just it was another one of those pictures that uh, I think was considered too arty. It got good reviews. But and then it became public domain, and so now it's kind of around in crappy copies. But there's a good criterion of it. It's it's really a, one of my favorite Wells pictures. Well, anyway, that's that's I would say one of my top five. I also felt that uh, the original David Lean Great Expectations. Oh God, yeah, was a great movie. Mm-hmm. And and the photography also. I mean. People forget, you know, they thought the first thing he did was, first movie he did was Breaking the Sound Barrier. But I think he did Great Expectations just before that. And Oliver Twist. So, and, uh, yeah. and Oliver Twist, right. So that's pretty good debut. Yeah. But, uh, and then um, I would say probably for, in terms of uh, favorite, I like Bridge on the River Choir. I just thought, I mean, this is this. The thing I like about all those movies, basically, is people did that shit. Mm-hmm. There was a Mozart. Mm-hmm. There were prisoners in Japanese camps in New Guinea or wherever the hell they were. And all of that are people that did things. And they made a movie in 19, maybe 2000 or 2004, something. Called for television called RKO two six seven. All right, which was a movie about the making of Citizen Kane, and uh, um, Leah Schreiber played Orson Welles, and uh, all of uh, the people in the movie were really 
really wonderful actors. And a guy named, I think, David Rintels wrote it. And it was really amazing. And the reason that I liked it so much is that um, in it, at the right near the end of the movie, uh, Hearst shows Marion Davies, Citizen Kane, in their forum-like basement, or spectrum, whatever you want to call it, uh, which is as big as an arena. And just the two of them, and you show to the movie. Afterward, he walked, and, and that was not their bottom floor. They had a floor below. So he walks about 50 feet and starts down a staircase to the next level. And she is running after him, swearing at him, said, you motherfucker, you can't have that. You keep saying what a great man you are. You keep saying you're so great. You can do this and that. Well, you'll stop this movie from coming out. Because if you don't, both our careers and lives are over. Because they say, this says we're a joke. And he said to her, Marion, I will not tolerate that kind of language in my home. And secondly, I never said I was a great man. I quite simply said I was a man who had a chance to be great and wasn't. Mm -hmm. That got my attention. That's big fucking shit. Because no matter what uh... you felt about the guy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you, uh, have you seen Mank? I was going to ask. No, I haven't seen it. Oh, it's a, it's I a, have trouble watching. I have trouble watching streamed movies. You know? Because so, they're uh, on TV, or because they're because I see uh, theaters being turned into condos. I don't know. I, I I agree with that. But you yeah. know, for the last year, it's been very difficult to to see movies in theaters. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's one that would be uh, worth but, seeing in a theater if you want to go to a theater and see it. Yeah, well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll catch up with it. It's on my it's on my back of my mind list. But uh, <laughs> there is another thing. When she said yesterday you were going to ask me about movies, a lot of times I know Joe, you're you're like this. We talked about this one time. I will go re-see a movie, or when I see it's on television. I will watch it for a moment. For example, um, in Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston told me one day 
while they were shooting. They were looking for Roman soldier extras to be when Christ is carrying the cross through the streets to the cemetery. Uh, they needed Roman soldiers with him. And uh, there is a scene where Christ stops at a water well where Charlton Heston is trying to grab a goblet of water because he's one of the prisoners allowed to drink out of the thing. And a little Roman centurion with an unbelievable face, not a Danny Trejo face, but a, a face, an Italian kind of face or whatever it was, that is unbelievable. Heston went with William Wyler and they looked at 400 faces that whole day. And Heston says, what's the problem? He said, I need a face that can see the face of God. Wow. And so he picked this one guy. And I'll never forget it. He's on the back of a horse. And he rides up. And he cracks his whip on the back of Jesus. And then cracks it again on the back of Jesus, who is giving water to Heston. And he, keep, he says twice, no water for him. I said no water for him. And Jesus stands up and turns around and faces the centurion. And the, the quadruple take the centurion does is unbelievable because that's exactly what you saw. And as a movie maker, you know much more about it than I would, Joe, but I find it tough to put Christ on screen visually, facially. Yeah, you know. Well, they used to they used to treat Christ like they treated the president, you know, and they would make a movie with somebody playing Roosevelt or something. It would always be from the back. From the back, uh, right. and they would they would have somebody you know imitate his voice or whatever, and they would al- they would almost never show the guy like like a normal person. And and when it comes to certain deities, that's that's pretty much the safe way of doing it because right. you know as soon as you cast Jeffrey Hunter. Uh, as Christ, everybody says, well, look how white bread he is. He's, that's not the way he really was, you know? So it, it's sometimes, and I, I happen to like that movie, uh, but uh, maybe it's sometimes it's just better to let people imagine instead of actually showing them. Well, I, I agree, because it's, it's in their own mind anyway. Yeah. You know? So why, why, why destroy what you got going for you? Yeah. Um, but th- that's one moment. Another moment is in a movie, I'm forgetting the name of it now, it starred Marlon Brando, where he played a sheriff. And they're, uh, the chase. The chase. He's the chase. chasing after Re- Redford and another guy, Marlon Brando is. And his wife comes to see him in his office. He's the sheriff of the town. And his wife comes to see him. And uh, Angie Dickinson. Angie Dickinson played the wife and uh he's talking on the phone and he hangs up the phone and she's sitting on the front of his desk and he's at the chair behind it and he reaches his hand out and she's kind of looking at him and he slaps his hand three times on the table for her to hold his hand Hmm. behavior yeah it's about (laughs) the behavior and those, those, I'll, I'll see that movie again and again just from that. And uh, uh, I, I, there are actually three performances. I think the best all-around actor that I ever saw in my lifetime was George C. Scott. Because he was 
a lit stick of dynamite. And there's a scene in that movie where he and Brando are both big deals. One's a businessman, one I don't know the name of it. And they have a scene, one's the real rich guy and the other guy. Uh, and there's a scene where they're very good in it. But uh, he said to me, uh, uh, I, I, what I like about the movie is that uh, that's George C. Scott just had that. However, there are three performances that I have seen in my career of people that were alive and movies that were made during my career that I could have never given. I don't think I'd have been good enough to do them. The first one is Jeffrey Rush in Shine. Oh, he's fantastic in that, yeah. The second one is Roy Scheider in All That Jazz. Yeah, also great. He was fussy. Yeah. I had, I had once a year, I had a lunch, three of us. And one time we invited a fourth in, but every year for at least 23 years, I had a lunch with uh, the funniest guy I ever knew and uh, a director who to me is up in the, you know, how they can make a movie a decade under the influence and not mention this guy's name. The other one was Bob Fosse and George Carlin and me. And one day, for some reason, Fosse had met Mort Saul. So he invited Mort Saul to come to the lunch. But Mort was not good at historical stuff because uh, that's what we talked about, you know, this and that and the other thing. But to not, did you ever see that documentary, Joe, uh, Decade Under the Influence? Oh, yeah. It's a book, too. It's a book. It started as a book, actually. It is? Yeah. Oh. Well, uh, Ted Demi directed and died within months after we did it playing basketball uh, after going to Walgreens, which he never should have done. So anyway, um, but I, I just think that um, when I think of other movies that belong in everybody's repertoire of however many movies they want to list, you got to put Shane in there. Oh yeah. And, and you can't leave, you can't leave. Uh, I mean, it's like, I remember Henry Hathaway, Dennis Hopper told me a story once. He had a little tiny part in, uh, I forget the movie, The Hathaway, a Western, where he was directing. And all he had to do, it's a, it's a trivia question. All he had to do was walk through a screen door out of a room, out onto the street. And Henry Hathaway made him do it. It could have been the sons of Katie Elder. I don't know. Um, but something like, he made him do it 73 times. Because it was a test for Dennis. Who was all over the place all the time. Hathaway never said a word. I just want to do it again. I want to do it again. And the funniest time, and so Dennis was frustrated. Hathaway hated him, but he put him through it. And he finally walked through the door okay, and uh, for Hathaway. But in moments like that, Jack Nicholson and I were doing The King of Marvin Gardens. And in the movie, um, before we began, he asked, he sent me the script. And Jack had seen the script. But he said, which one of the two brothers do you want to play? And I said, well... 
I enjoy being cast. I enjoy how a director sees me. And he said, well, I see you as the dreamer, brother, David, and uh, or Jason, and the other brother, David, I see Jack as. So we're doing this movie, and in the movie, uh, did you guys ever see it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, it's about, you know, the end of the American dream kind of in Atlantic City. But I have a scene where I have to tell Jack that I love him. And I put my arms around him. And he puts his arms around me, but he just pats my back. He doesn't hug me. And uh, that's the scene. But there's been dialogue for about 40 seconds before that, where I tell him what it means to me and so forth and so on. Cut. I want to do it again. Now, this is Bob Rafelson. Finally, we do it nine times. And Curly Bob says, I want to do it again. Jack and I look at each other, look at him. And we said, Curly, what the fuck are you looking for? I can't cry anymore. I think of the same shit and it just isn't working anymore. I can't do, and Jack says, what do you want? Bob Raveson has a long, like a cashmere sweater on. He grabs his wrist and pulls the left sleeve of his sweater all the way up to his shoulder blade and knocks on his arm and says, 15 mil. What? What are you talking about? $15 million opening weekend. And that was what he wanted to see. <laughs> I don't oh think he got God. it. I don't think he got his $15 million. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no. But I, no, I didn't make, I did very poorly. But I won the National Film Critics Award for it. No, it's, it's a, the acting is great in that yeah. picture. And uh, I remember who gave it to me was Thomas Alpert. You remember him? Mm-hmm. He was uh, for New Jersey Ledger or something like that. Star Ledger. And a guy, New York Star Ledger. Star Ledger. Another guy who was on that was Bruce Berenberg. Yes. Who was with a, a Jersey paper also. Uh, the Newark Evening News. The what? The Newark Evening News. All right. And uh, so anyway, but they were really uh, a big deal. And uh, the worst thing I ever did to anybody in my career uh, publicly that I'm very ashamed of, it's in my book, but I won the National Film Critics Award while we were shooting The King of Marvin Gardens. So we all went up to the Algonquin Inter Library that night, Jack and me and Curly Bob and Helen Burston, about six of us from Atlantic City and stayed the night, uh, got the award, stayed the night, and went back the next day to shoot on Monday. And while I was there, sitting in the room before the awards were given, Dinah Shore walked in with Burt Reynolds. And uh, they sat across from me at their own little table. I mean, there were guests there, too, you know. And I did not acknowledge him. 
because and uh, that's that that because he was working the room <laughs> and i didn't think he needed that i mean at that time he was about to be the biggest star in the world if he wasn't already i thought he was great in deliverance i thought he was good in a whole lot of other stuff and then i worked with him later on and he was just a prince of a guy very misunderstood guy very deep into making movies and about movies and everything else but that's the one moment i'm more ashamed of than anything else and the other time i was ashamed of the town was the night that they gave gadge kazan the lifetime achievement award at the oscars and he was presented walked up by marty scorsese and bob de niro he was a little kind of crippled and hunched a little bit so they walked up with him and then they stepped back maybe two feet and he was booed by the room i was not there i saw it on television and both guys took 20 steps backward and left him alone i didn't like that and I didn't like the fact that people that are related to me were in the room and were people that didn't stand. And they don't know a goddamn thing about the guy. They just know what the town told them. And uh, if I look back, I don't like to look back. I always look ahead. So bring me something, Joe, please. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, you well, know what gets a lot of play because I get residuals. That thing where I played the grave digger. Uh, you know, it's so weird. I get those same residuals. This is an episode of CSI New York. I asked Bruce. I asked Bruce to play this part. It was not a big part. It was a grave digger at the beginning, no. of the movie. and I was astonished that he said yes. Uh, but anyway, it was fun to do, and I and there were other good actors in the show, and it was it was fine. But the yeah. strange thing about it is that. I still get residuals from that damn show. Plays all the time. Sure. And I, I only show. did the one episode. Yeah. I know. But it was, did you do more than one of those? No, that's the only one I did. They didn't, they didn't ask me back. <laughs> they said, yeah, we're bringing they, people like Duran on the show. Forget it. They're not coming back. <laughs> well, that show is playing somewhere all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I love the fact that uh, when I was with Nebraska, in, in Telluride, um, I was walking around the street one night, you know, you're there like three nights or something. And our movie hadn't shown yet at the festival, but it had been shown that afternoon because Francis Coppola was there with uh, Gia and uh, uh, I don't think the other one was there, the older girl, um, but Gia, the, uh, his dead son's daughter and uh, her mother and a couple other people. And when I walked in, Redford saw me at the hotel and I just checked into the Carlton as I was checking in. And Redford says, you know, Francis Coppola wants to see you as soon as you can see him. And uh, I said, really? He said, yeah, uh, come with me to a reception. And so we had to go, I put my shit in the room and Laura was with me and. Uh, 
uh, Andrew was with me and my secretary, Wendy, was with me. And uh, they all stayed and I went with Redford to this reception and Francis was there. I walked through the door. He's not going to get out of his seat, period. He's like Mr. Hitchcock. They're not going to stand. <laughs> it's, it's too arduous. So uh, he said, please, Bruce, come over here. And he sat me. I sat down next to him and he said, you know, when I ca- I did a movie for Francis. No one ever saw it. Twixed. It was called Twixed. And uh, Al Fanning was in it. Val Kilmer was in it. And I played a kind of a, and Val was playing a broken down Stephen King on a book tour. And he came to my town where I was the sheriff. And he knew things were strange because as he drove into town, the steeple clock had five sides and each side was set to a different time. (laughs) So, uh, well, that's why he worked for Francis. I mean, come on. So uh, he... And I'd done, I'd done that two years before I did Nebraska. So he said, I put you in that movie because I had a hunch. I knew nothing about Nebraska. When I saw the movie, that the only other guy who believed in you like I did was Alexander Payne. And the first day of work on Nebraska, Alexander said to me, you see anything here today? We were in, I don't know, Palsy, Nebraska, some fucking paralyzed place. And he uh, he said, do uh, you see anything going on now? Seven o'clock in the morning, your first morning here? And I said, yeah, I do. I said, I have not seen it before, but everybody seems to be pulling their oar. And he said, He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, well, hopefully that's because we have 81 crew members here and 77 have worked on every movie I've ever made. (laughs) And I said, wow. And then he put his arm fully around me and he said to me, so you, sir, can dare to risk. This is Faden Papa Michael, your cameraman. I said, yes, I met him last evening. And uh, he said, I wonder if you'd do something for Faden and I that we're not sure you've ever done in your career. And I said, meaning what? He said, meaning never show us anything, ever. Let us find it. And I was back to day one in school with Kazan and Mr. Strasberg when they said, don't say anything. Just behave. And I realized then, um, and I, I started to look that way. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I, was, uh, I wasn't there yet when I did the verbs, let's put it that way, but the verbs was different stuff. I made every kind of mistake you could make until I had my director come up to me and shake me up and say, have fun. Oh. that's what we're all here for (laughs) I I must say and all the directors that I've worked with I mean when I got my star Joe presented it to me on Hollywood Boulevard and uh, the thing I said at the end of that ceremony um, 
about, uh, you know, the, uh, and, and actually this Bill Garcetti was the head of the Chamber of Commerce then in Hollywood. He wasn't the mayor or anything. And he said, what the last thing he said was, he said, well, what does all this mean to you? I said, well, first of all, there's probably, I don't know, seven or 800 people out there who want us to get the hell off this stage so the traffic can go again. <laughs> I, I don't like to be the guy holding up traffic. But he said, no, well, what is like the, the fact you got a star and everything else? And I said, you know what? What this really says to me is that a bunch of Hollywood folks got together and said, Bruce Dern can fly. And that's how I end my book, too, that line. I just, I've never been after, sure, would I get an award? I'd love it. But, uh, and I have gotten awards. Uh, when I won at Cannes, talk about, uh, you know, unfortunate. When we went to Cannes, Alexander, me and my group of three, and Alexander and uh, his girlfriend at the time, got on the plane to go to, Paris and then down to Cannes with a wet print. No one had ever seen it. And the guy just finished it. And uh, Thierry Omri, who was the guy that had taken over from the other guy, it was Thierry's second year or third year there. And uh, he, Alexander, uh, sent him something that he saw. And he said, I want it in the festival. I want it in, yes, I want it in the festival and I want it in the competition. So when the movie was over, uh, we had to stand up and you're in a front row and then there's an aisle, a big wide aisle. And then there's another hundred people in front of you in a few rows. And then everybody else is behind you in the palace. So we stood up and they started clapping and they went on and they went on. And I mean, they went on. And uh, after about two minutes of it, I turned and started heading for the door. He grabbed me and he put his arm around me. He said, stand here because this is for you. Yeah. And uh, Jack timed it and said, you got seven minutes. And I didn't get that on about Schmidt. Which Alexander had also directed, yeah. but uh, it was uh, it was just and and so anyway to make a long story short, so Paramount had no belief in the movie at all, and Brad Gray was running it, and Adam Goodman was the president, and Adam Goodman loved it, and Brad Gray loved the movie, but he didn't think anybody'd see it. He fought it ten years; it didn't get made for ten years. Alexander told me about the movie in two thousand and four. And it had been written and he couldn't get it made because A, it was in black and white and Paramount who owned it wouldn't make it. And B, they were nuts about having me. And he said, well, I'm not going to make it without Bruce Dern or without black and white. So he went on and he made about Schmidt. And then he came back and went through it again, couldn't get it made. So he went and made Sideways. And then he came back and I thought, well, now if he calls again, he called to tell me he was going to Hawaii to make his Fernand Nebraska movie. Uh, and there was nothing in it for me. And I said, well, what about Nebraska? He said, well, 
we'll keep trying. And about uh, a month before we got the green light in August of 2012 to shoot the movie, uh, we concocted a plan to get Brad Gray to Nebraska. And so they took him to Nebraska, and I saw him when he landed, when they came back. They went for lunch. They, they took the Paramount jet, and they went for lunch. And uh, Brad got off the plane, and I met the plane. I didn't go with him. And uh, so I got John Jackson went with Alexander, who was his casting director. He always uses him. Do you know him, Joe? No, I never met him. Uh, tall, thin guy, about 60. Looks like uh, Stanley Tucci with hair. And so he, uh, he, he said, uh, well, I, I said, well, what did you think, Brad? He said, you know what, Bruce? It's a flyover state. And it's the grimmest, drabest, bleakest place I've ever seen in my life. There's no sun. There's no trees. There's nothing. And who's going to give a shit about an old guy with a bullshit dream from a flyover state? And Alexander was very proud of me because I turned and I, I looked him in the eye. And I said, Brad, what do you think they call? How many flyover states are there, Brad? He said, nine. And he named them. And they're the usual, you know, the code is Montana, Idaho, Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, so forth and so on. And uh, he said, we don't do a lot of business there. I said, but Brad, what do you think they call that area in America? He said, who gives a shit? Bleak. They call it bleak. I said, no, sir. They call it the heartland. A day later, he okayed the movie. Nice. But in, not in black and white. <laughs> so that was another fight. And then when I give you guys this figure, shit but he alexander was given uh 25 million to make the movie but when he came in black and white and with me and everything he had to make it for 10 and a half so he lost 15 million dollars but you could make i mean joe you and i can make that movie for a million three yeah uh, that's true <laughs> without all those paramount trucks that's that's a tell me and they all drove all across with his 88 crew people. Yeah. But uh, he was, uh, he's uh, of my favorite directors and skilled directors. I would say I've worked for, um, and I never put you genius status, but you're the, the seventh said, don't, best please. of the directors I work. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, what genius status to me is, is, a director's approachability on the set from any crew member or cast member at any minute, any time, all day long. Oh, that's the secret. And Mr. Hitch, Mr. Hitchcock had that. Kazan had that. Doug Trumbull had that. Quentin has that. Alexander has that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Francis has that. And in other words, you're all professors, but they love to talk. 
and the best I ever, and and then the best, I didn't work that much with you except on the burbs, but I wasn't a central piece of the burbs. You know what I mean? So I wasn't around you that much. But your set was the most fun I've ever been on. I mean, I was worried that Tom Hanks would break his neck on that fucking skateboard and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, it it still has it still has my favorite last line in all of movies. When Corey Feldman runs out of that house and says, "God, I love this street," that is absolutely fantastic. But Joe, you you are a genius, and the reason that I that's the only reason that I I distinct it the other way. But I would say that you're in my group of four, which includes you, Al Ashby. People get pissed off at this when I say John Frankenheimer, mm-hmm. and um, the fourth one is Bob Rafelson. Well, then I guess I have to put you in my. I guess I have to put you on my next movie then, huh? <laughs> well, uh, I hope so. I mean, I just. Uh, uh, anyway, when I, I was talking about Telluride, so at Telluride, I'm walking around the street and a guy walks up to me in all black with uh, kind of shaggy hair and everything, two or three inches taller than me. And he said, I just saw Nebraska this evening. And uh, I said, what are you doing out here by yourself? He said, well, I just want to tell you. You were really something in this movie. Really something. And I didn't get his name. And then at the end of it, he said, I, we talked about you. And out of the blue. And I said, you know what I loved when you guys made the movie with each one tells a story, of the five of you, whatever that was called, the Moon Maze Marigolds or whatever it was called. Um, and I said, there's a scene in there well, the scene is the one I always told you about when Alan Arkish, who I was talking to, is walking down the street with the dinosaur, telling him what he has to do. Now, just eat a couple of buildings, you know, anything over 18 stories is good, edible, eat it. Um, and it was just so cute. And it was him. And it's the only time I ever met him. And are you still friendly with him? Or is Alan, he sure. Oh. He's, uh, he's been on the podcast and he's, he does trailers from hell. You know, he does commentaries for us. So we're, we're all, that, that whole Corman group is still pretty tight. Oh, well, that's good. Um, but listen, Bruce, we really, we really appreciate it's you so coming much. on. Yes. It's, uh, it's, you know, I know you, well, don't, I, you don't usually do this kind of thing. And, uh, and we really appreciate having you. Well, thank you. I appreciate doing it. I didn't get to any of the questions that you uh, uh, wanted to no, ask. No, you gave us, you gave us more than five pictures. You did good. You gave us everything. Uh, it was wonderful. Well, I, 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 sometimes uh, I'm in a movie that's very good, but I don't uh, quantify the craftsmanship of it. I've worked with craftsmen uh, who are not particularly good directors. You'll notice that I don't call Hal an immediate genius because he was not approachable on a set. Uh, he was usually stoned. Well, I, I was just going to say, say hello to Walgreens. But, <laughs> uh, I, uh, but, and I thought Frankenheimer was the best timeline director I ever worked for, ever. No, yeah, he's had he had a really great run there in the '60s too. Oh God! You know, oh, one one great movie after oh, another. 
why would they remake Manchurian Candidate? Well, not only that, they remade <laughs> it and turned it into a science fiction movie. I mean, it's, it's just a terrible idea. And I and I, oh. Jonathan Demme was a friend of mine, and he remade that picture, and he remade Charade, another movie that didn't need to be remade. So I've never quite understood what he was thinking about that stuff. The charade with Walter Matthau, you mean? Yeah, yeah, no, he remade it as the the truth about Charlie. I think it was right, called yeah, with, with Charles. Oh Bruce. my God! I know, me. but you know what are you going to do? Anyway, anyway Bruce, thank you, you so much. Are, you guys are fabulous, and uh, uh, I'm I'm out there, Joe. Okay, well we're here too. You're you're a delight, and I respect you oddly enough. Well, oddly enough the is right. I mentioned. All right. I mean. Simply because you uh, you are the book of movies. Yeah. That is true. He, he knows what Jesse Lasky ate for breakfast. I mean, this guy knows everything. <laughs> you can't beat him at trivia. Don't even try. Anyway. All right. Bruce, thank you. Thank you for coming Thanks, to play Bruce. with us. Thank you for including me. I appreciate it. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made Stay safe out there, folks. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.